0: Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus.
1: dictionary defines irony as a situation or event that seems to be the opposite of what you expect and is often amusing as a result. Let me give you a couple of examples of irony. This is a very, very well-known one. This is Barry Manilow, probably best known for one song, which is I Write the Songs, but Barry Manilow didn't write that song. Somebody else wrote that song. Uh, another couple of visual examples of irony. Don't really need to say anything to these ones, I wouldn't think. But if you didn't get it, I'll explain them to you over coffee, okay? Uh, and here's the other one. On the road to success, there are no <laughs> shortcuts. That cracks me up every time I see that. But uh, I mention that because I think that this passage that we're looking at today, Acts chapter 9, has more irony... than any other passage in the whole of the Bible. One of the ironies that we've already seen so far in the book of Acts is that the persecution of Christians has actually increased the spread of Christianity, the very opposite of what the Jewish leaders were hoping for. Christians from Jerusalem are now taking the message about Jesus throughout Judea and Samaria and ultimately it's going to go to the ends of the earth. The religious leaders in Jerusalem are wanting to crush Christianity but they've only succeeded in actually making it grow faster and today we're looking at a passage looking at Saul's conversion and Luke sees this as being one of the most significant events that happens in the, in the, in the early church. So significant we're told the story three times in the book of Acts. This was a big event, not just for Saul and not just for the few Christians who knew him, but for the entire Christian world. We still read the letters that he wrote because of his faith in Jesus the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we're introduced very briefly to Saul again. There was a short introduction to him at the beginning of chapter 8, where we're told that he was there at the stoning of Stephen. But at the beginning of 9, we get this more complete introduction. If you had to choose a couple of words to describe what Saul was like, I think the two that come to mind for me were sincerity and commitment. He is a man who is committed to a cause passionately committed, devoted to serving God by seeking to crush Christianity. Saul persecuted Christians, not just because he thought that they were wrong, he saw them as enemies of God. He saw them as blasphemers and he was sin- he sincerely believed that persecution of Christians would have been what God wanted him to do. So we open up to this Acts chapter 9, first couple of verses there. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He's heading to Damascus to round up any Christians that he can find. Now, Damascus wasn't just down the road. This is a trip of about 250 kilometres. I mean, that shows you this, the, the sincerity and the commitment of this man, that he's willing off his own bat to head down there to round up all of these Christians. Now, on a side note here, I, I'd like a dollar for every time someone has told me, it doesn't matter what you believe, just so long as you're sincere. You probably had people tell you that as well. I mean, Paul's living proof that that is not true. Here is a man who is incredibly sincere in what he's doing. Here is a man who is sincerely wrong, desperately wrong, and he's about to find out all about it. When you read through this passage, I think this is one of the parts of the Bible where you really do recognise that Jesus has a great sense of humour. I mean, there's so many funny things. 250 kilometres he's travelled. He's just on the outskirts of Damascus and just about to make this triumphal entry into Damascus, waving the paperwork to be able to arrest the Christians who were there. And just before he reaches Damascus, he's knocked off his horse or knocked to the ground by a flash of light. Now, Jesus could have done that anywhere on the 250 kilometers he could have done it just outside of Jerusalem but he chose not to do that he got him to ride 249 kilometers and then he is knocked down by by Jesus and he hears this voice and the voice says to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me now I think Paul was Saul was genuinely stumped by hearing this voice he had no idea who this could have been so he responds That way in the question, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That must have knocked Saul for six. That would have turned his entire world upside down. By persecuting Christians, Saul is persecuting Jesus himself. Such is the connection that Jesus has with his church. Jesus tells Saul to get up, to go into Damascus, and there he'll be told what to do. So he finally arrives in Damascus on this triumphant visit, but this time he's now being led by the hand, like a child, still blind, into Damascus. When you're at school... One of the worst things that could happen would be that you're sent to the principal's office. So I'm told. I'm not familiar with this myself. But the worst part about going to the principal's office wasn't actually going into the office. You knew that you were just going to get a little talking to when you went in there. It's the sitting outside on the chair, that that was the painful part. It may have only been for like five or ten minutes, but it felt like five hours that you were sitting out there. Imagine those three days for Saul as he was waiting in Damascus, would have felt like that as well. Three of the longest days of his life. But meanwhile, in another part of Damascus, Jesus speaks to another man whose name is Ananias. And Ananias is told to go to Saul to lay hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And I love the way that this conversation unfolds. You'll see it there in verse number 10. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem and he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So I've heard reports about this guy, Jesus. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with them. Are you sure that's what you want me to do? Wouldn't it be better for all of us if he just stays blind? But do you see the wordplay in the conversation here? Ananias says that Saul has caused suffering for those who call on your name. And a little later on, Jesus will say, Saul will be the one who will carry Jesus' name and he will suffer for my name, Jesus says. Look at the way it read there, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered the place. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, whom you appeared to, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And nice realizes that this is a brother, a fellow Christian, a follower of Jesus. After all that has taken place, when a person becomes a Christian today, it's normally a situation of turning from ignorance to understanding of not really knowing much about God or perhaps even rejecting God and then ultimately learning who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. So there's that repentance that takes place, turning from where you were to see the true God. For Saul, becoming a Christian was a slightly different matter. See, he was a man who already believed in the God who had made the heavens and the earth. He already believed in the promises that God had made through Abraham. He already believed that God was going to send a saviour. He already believed that God had revealed himself through his word. See, once Saul understood who Jesus was, everything just fell into place for him. He had all of this information already in his head. He already knew the scriptures backwards. Sure, there was a lot that he had misunderstood or hadn't understood clearly. That's why he was persecuting the Christians. But now, now that he realises who Jesus is, the whole thing makes sense. The penny has dropped. Jesus is the fulfilment of all of those promises that God made. So within days of encountering Jesus on the road, Saul is standing in the synagogue and preaching the gospel, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And look at what it says, verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's opening up the scriptures and proving to them that Jesus is the one that God had promised to send. There was a movie out a couple of years ago, you may have seen this, Al Pacino and Russell Crowe. It was called The Insider. And Russell Crowe played a character who'd been working in the tobacco industry. And now he's left, he's spilling the beans on what actually happens in the tobacco industry. And he was a very powerful man because he had come from inside the organisation, understood the organisation completely. Well, that's exactly what's happened here with Saul. Paul, or Saul, is an insider, someone who knows all about Judaism. And now he's proving, not just saying, he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. He has become a dangerous man. Luke tells us that there is a plot to kill him in Damascus. They keep watch on the city gate. They do not want this man leaving the city alive. Saul eventually escapes from Damascus and heads to Caesarea and then on to his hometown of Tarsus. Now I said that this passage is chock-a-block full of uh, ironies Let me just run you through a couple of them that we see. First, we see the way that Saul arrives in Damascus. He planned to arrive arrive there uh, in a show of strength with these letters to arrest the Christians. But instead, he's led into Damascus by the hand, like a child, blinded. The man who thought that he was going to be able to do great things for God has been humbled by God. The second thing that we see is that the persecutor has now become the persuader. The man who had gone to Damascus to stop people from preaching about Jesus is now preaching about Jesus. Third thing that we see is that the persecutor has become the persecuted. Have a look again at what Jesus says to Ananias about Saul. Verse number 15 in Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, this, is my, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He'd gone there to persecute the Christians. And now we hear from Jesus that he will be the one who will suffer for the name of Jesus. And then the enemies become the rescuers. This is probably my favourite irony. The very people that Paul wanted to make suffer are the ones who save Paul's or Saul's skin. Not just once, but twice they rescue him and make sure that he doesn't die or doesn't get arrested. Now, as I said before, Saul's conversion is probably the most significant event in the book of Acts. That's why we have it told to us three times. And I think that there are lessons for us from these chapters as well. The first thing is this. Never underestimate God's grace. That's got to be one of the most impressive, impressive things about Saul's conversion. Here is a man who has been persecuting Christians. Here is a man who considered himself to be an enemy of Jesus. What does he deserve? Well, he deserves to be punished. But instead, God demonstrates extraordinary grace to this man. He saves him. He shows him the truth about who Jesus is. He forgives him and gives him eternal life. It's remarkable that God would be so gracious with this man. Now, if you're a Christian sitting here today, then my guess is the story of Saul's conversion may not quite be the dramatic uh, conversion that you had, but God's been nonetheless gracious with us. What did you and I deserve from God? In case you're not sure of the answer, it is absolutely nothing other than God's judgment and punishment. And if you think that God owed you something or that you deserved something from God, then you need to start reading your Bible a little more carefully. God owed you nothing. God was willing to give complete forgiveness to Saul and to us. Willing to show us the truth about Jesus. Willing to give us eternal life. And it's remarkable that God would be so willing to do that for us. We should never cease to be amazed by that. We should never take that for granted. God's grace is an extraordinary thing, and we should thank Him for it every day. But the other thing that stands out in this passage is the power of the gospel to change lives, to transform lives. I mean, look at what's happened to Saul here. He'd gone to Damascus to arrest Christians. He leaves Damascus as a follower of Jesus. He'd gone to Damascus to silence those who were preaching about Jesus and he ends up standing in the synagogue in Damascus preaching about Jesus. He'd gone to Damascus to persecute Christians and he ends up being persecuted as a Christian. See, the gospel changes everything. It changes what's important in your life. It changes your priorities. It changes the way that you see other people. It changes the way that you live. It changes your goals. It changes your purpose in life. That's one of the things that we're going to see all the way through the book of Acts as we continue to look at it for a few more weeks and then look at it again next year. The message about Jesus changes lives, changes the lives of crippled people as we see in the book of Acts, changes the lives of sorcerers, of Ethiopian eunuchs, it changes their lives dramatically, the gospel changes everything. If you're sitting here today and you've not come to that point of placing your trust in Jesus, then you need to do something about it. You need to thank God for the forgiveness that he's offered to you, free of charge, in Jesus. You need to come before him and you need to pray and tell him that you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life. If you're sitting here today as someone who does not know that message, make sure that you get to hear it clearly and understand what it is that God has done for you. And if you're sitting here today as someone who who already has come to that point of trust in Jesus, then make sure that the gospel is continuing to change your life. It doesn't just change you once and it doesn't just change you a bit. It changes you completely and it changes you forever. Forever. You need to make sure that the gospel is still working out its change in your life. In the way that you view your life, because Jesus is now your Lord. In the way that you view others, because you know that they need to experience God's grace as well. The gospel changes everything.